Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we come to the end of the first week of our current series, The Story of the Bible, in this message, Dr. Neufeld will look at the role and purpose of Israel's kings. So let's go back to the Bible with our study on kings, hope, renewal, and decline. When King David died, his son Solomon came to the throne. Even people who have little knowledge of the Bible know something of King Solomon. Under his leadership, the kingdom of Israel reached the highest status it has ever enjoyed. Now, this was so for several reasons. Even though David defeated most of his enemies, Solomon watched the expansion of the borders of Israel until it reached the very boundaries that God had promised Abraham. If you'd been alive in Solomon's day, you would have rightly said that every promise that God had made to Abraham was being fulfilled. The national boundaries matched what had been promised. The people became as numerous as they had ever been in its history. The Queen of Sheba came to visit and is blessed by what she sees. Perhaps Israel will yet rise to bless all the nations. How do we describe the wealth during the reign of Solomon? Second Chronicles 1.15 says, And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Second Chronicles 1 verse 9 has Solomon praying, O Lord God, let your word to David my father now be fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so we're getting a picture, a large population with ever-increasing wealth. But of course, how do we speak of Solomon without mentioning his massive building projects? The most famous, of course, is his building of the temple. The numerous references to the gold of the temple highlight its splendor. Jerusalem was transformed from a small Jebusite city to a, a place of grandeur, and in the highest spot of the city, a place that could be seen from a great distance would have been the temple of the Lord shining brilliantly as the sun struck its golden coverings. Psalm 48 must surely have expressed that reality. Verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And then as the psalm ends, we're left to imagine what life would have been like. The psalmist says, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Of course, the building up of Jerusalem and the centerpiece of the temple is not the only building that Solomon built. He established a rich trading relationship with the nation of Tyre, and from that nation imported an amazing amount of building materials, along with some of the best craftsmen in the world. Imports included ivory, apes, and peacocks. Solomon is also known for having built a number of cities, Hatzor, Megiddo, Gatzer, Beth Haram, the, the cities go on and on. If you visit Israel today, you may be taken to a place called Tel Megiddo the site where Solomon not only built up a city overlooking the plains of Megiddo, or as we now call it, Armageddon, but one can see how building up that city and its vantage point over a large expanse of valley allowed Solomon to control all the trade of that region. 
whether it was the military or the economy or trade relationships with nations, which included peaceful coexistence or the worship of the God of Israel, no matter where you turned, this was the flowering of the vision given to Abraham. Three times every year, the king would offer burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord, letting the people know that their king, in all his splendor, humbled himself and bowed his knee to the great God of heaven, who had fulfilled all his promises. You know, what's more, Solomon wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs, which are a demonstration of the godly wisdom of the king. Again, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you might be tempted to believe that we are quickly now coming to the end of the story. The glorious and majestic God who created this world for his glory created man as his image bearer, formed to rule and reign on God's behalf. But man sinned and rebelled, but God in mercy said he would crush the head of the serpent and that the earth really would one day be filled with the glory of the Lord. In spite of numerous examples of profound evil, still through one man, Abraham, God promised his agenda of bringing salvation to the world. And after giving of the law, and in spite of massive reversals, now God has established his people in the promised land, established Jerusalem as his dwelling place, erected a temple to demonstrate that God reigns, and installed his king on his holy hill. Perhaps all that now remained is for the promise of David to be fulfilled. Perhaps after Solomon would come the Messiah, the Christ, and we would see how it was that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Would now not be the time when the Messiah would take his seat on the throne and from Jerusalem rule the entire earth. But as before, the Bible presents us with amazing twists in the plot line. In spite of the splendor of Israel at the time of Solomon, cracks were beginning to appear in the structure. Not all things were as they should be. And if you peel back the layer of splendor, one can readily see sin and evil and rank rebellion against the Lord God. One of the first areas was in Solomon's total disobedience to place his trust fully in God. Back in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17, when Moses was delivering his farewell sermon to the people of Israel, he included in that speech exact instructions from God for the time when Israel was to have a king. And here's what Moses taught. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your own brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Indeed, the rest of the speech contains an article that the king to come as his very first act must write out a copy of the law for himself, including this prohibition against horses and chariots and many wives and agreements with Egypt and excessive wealth. He was to read the law regularly so that he would never forget. You know, the reason for these commands is that the king must never forget that if he is to be safe from his enemies, he will have to rely on God and not on his military hardware. Faith, confidence in God, the kind of thing that Adam and Eve didn't have when they refused to believe God in regard to the tree in the center of the garden. 
It is this trust in the word of God that the king was required to demonstrate. But this very thing Solomon did not do. We've already mentioned Megiddo, which was one of the key cities in which Solomon stationed his horses and his chariots. Indeed, throughout the land, Solomon accumulated 40,000 stalls for his horses, all replete with chariots, chariots that were cast in splendor. He had elite troops to man them. But where did he get that many horses and chariots? Well, he got them from Egypt. And how did he secure a trade deal of that magnitude with Egypt? Well, he did it through a marriage alliance. 1 Kings 11 verse 1 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Indeed, Solomon had 700 wives and concubines. And many of these wives were the nobility of the nations he sought peace with. And so each of these women also represented an alliance, but also required a temple to the gods and goddesses that they had worshipped in their own country. It would have been part of the arrangement that Solomon would have made. And so Solomon filled the areas around Jerusalem with pagan temples. They dotted the landscape, and then he himself began to sacrifice to these gods and goddesses as well. And the heart of the richest king in history turned from God. And as we've seen in our story, the altogether glorious creator of heaven and earth will not be rebuffed by rebellious people. Even if they be Solomon and claim the Abrahamic promise, we would have thought that the story of the flood should already have reminded us of that. And so as Solomon nears his own death, idol worship is flourishing, and the ancient enemies of Israel who were once held at bay are again raising their heads because God has turned from the people of Israel. Clearly, storm clouds are now seen on the horizon, and we are only left to wonder what should indeed happen next. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. After Solomon had died, Rehoboam, his son, became king in his place. The drama that would happen early in his reign would forever change the history of Israel. The question surrounded the issue of taxation. The majority of Israel wanted relief from the very high tax rates that had existed during the time of Solomon. In an act of young and immature bravado, 
Rehoboam told Israel that his little finger was thicker than his father Solomon's thighs. He was having nothing of this rebellion of the people. And in consequence, the ten northern tribes of Israel made a fateful decision. They chose their own king, a man named Jeroboam, and declared independence from the throne of Jerusalem. This was an act of treason. Rehoboam assembled his army, and what followed looked like it would lead to a bloody civil war. We can imagine the civil war in the United States, a a war of four years that led to the deaths of more than 600,000 people. Just such a scene seemed to be on the horizon here. But then something remarkable happens. A prophet, a man named Shemaiah, who had a reputation of speaking on behalf of God, convinced King Rehoboam that this turn of events was orchestrated by God. And for some reason, and we're not told why, Rehoboam and the nobility with him agreed. And with those events, the history of Israel forever changes. Rather than being one nation, Israel becomes two separate nations, never again to be united. The rebellious northern tribes who led a division of the nation became known from that day onward as Israel. They consisted of the majority of Israel, 10 of the original 12 tribes. Their territory was to the north. And in the south, with just two tribes, is the other half of the old nation, now known as Judah. Judah continues to be governed by the direct descendant of King David. Their capital is Jerusalem. They have the magnificent temple built by Solomon, and the priests of God continue to worship there. In the initial stages of this new development, the people of Israel continued to sojourn to Judah and to its capital of Jerusalem for the major religious festivals and to offer sacrifices in the way that they had been taught by Moses. But the new king of Israel, Jeroboam, is worried. If the people continue to go to Jerusalem to worship and are reminded of the law and are told of the Bible's storyline and hear of God's promises made to King David, well, how long does that go on? Eventually, the people will want the two nations to be united again, and that might mean that eventually the people of Israel will depose their newly appointed king and come again under the leadership of the son of David and await the Messiah. And so Jeroboam makes an incredibly fateful decision. He will invent an alternative religion. He makes two golden calf idols and reinvents the story of the Exodus. He appoints priests to tell the people that these calf idols brought them up from Egypt and then sets up two cities in Israel as alternatives to Jerusalem, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Each city contains one of the calf idols, and each city becomes the location of one of the most demonic cities in the ancient world. See, unless one understands this turn of events, one can't make sense out of the Old Testament. Israel becomes the center of an alternative religion, and Judah continues to soldier on half of its original size. Judah continues to tell the story of hope, to replay the account of Abraham and of Moses and of David. It calls people to offer sacrifices to the one true God and to pray and hope for the day that God will, in his Messiah, reconcile the earth to himself and the earth will be the Lord's. But in Israel, a very, very different story is told. And it is this that is so very important to remember. When Bible readers read the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal on on Mount Carmel, where Elijah proves that the Lord, the God of Abraham, is the only true God, well, those events happened in Israel. That happened in the heart of one of the most God-denying cultures in history. 
And so for the Bible reader, as one's trying to understand the Bible storyline, these things are so important to grasp. The books of First and Second Kings tell the story of what is now two nations, Israel, the apostate nation, and Judah, the nation still trying to hold on to the worship of the true God. But the Bible reader might also wonder how it is that First and Second Chronicles tells the same story as that found in First and Second Kings. I mean, why is that? And the answer is that First and Second Kings is written during the time the events described in those books actually occurred. These books were probably completed shortly after the history that they describe. On the other hand, the books of First and Second Chronicles are written years later when a group of exiles from Judah were returning to the Promised Land. And so, the reader might notice that in First and Second Kings, we are told the story of the history of the kings of both Israel and Judah. And in the books of First and Second Chronicles, written years later, it tells the story of the history of only the kings of Judah, for that book was written to the people of Judah who would eventually survive. That's why today the reference to the Jews are to the most part, with some exceptions, the remnant of Judah. Israel eventually ceased to exist as a nation. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. From 931 B.C. to 722 B.C., for a, a period of slightly over 200 years, 20 different kings reigned in Israel. If one is to read the prophets alongside of the reign of these kings, one should note that some of the prophets lived in Israel and some lived in Judah. I've already mentioned Elijah as well as Elisha. Both of these prophets lived in Israel and testified against the horrible corruption and spiritual apostasy that existed there. But there are also two of the books of the prophets that speak of the situation in Israel. They are the books of Amos and the book of Hosea. Both of these prophets plead with Israel to come back. But Israel is determined never to return to the Lord. And therefore the prophets pronounce judgment and destruction on Israel. Listen to Amos 3 verses 11 to 12. Therefore thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and shall bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And indeed, that's precisely what happened. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army came up against Israel and utterly defeated them in battle. The Assyrians then conducted a mass deportation and transported the entire population of Israel into foreign lands. Most of them intermarried with the new peoples in the foreign lands where they were taken, and Israel simply went out of existence. It never became a nation again. Now, the situation in Judah was different. The Judeans also had their fair share of evil kings, but they also had a number of godly kings who led their nation in times of national renewal. Three kings of Judah stand head and shoulders above all the others. They were King Jehoshaphat, and then later King Hezekiah, and then last King Josiah. Each king in their time periods leading Judah to repentance and also leading them to defeat their enemies. But unfortunately, Evil was not kept within the borders of Israel. It was keenly felt in Judah as well. The prophets Joel, and then Jonah, and then Micah, and Isaiah, then Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, and also Obadiah, and then finally the weeping prophet Jeremiah, warned that if Judah would not repent from her sins, her fate would be very much like the fate of Israel. And so it came to be. 
136 years after Israel was defeated, the armies of Babylon surrounded Jerusalem. The Bible reader is meant to understand that the Tower of Babel, the demonic civilization that will eventually be revived under the Antichrist in the last days. Back in the year of 586 BC, this Babylonian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, broke down the walls of the city, killed its king, the descendant of David, and the hope of the Messiah, burned its temple to the ground, and deported the citizens of Judah to Babylon. Psalm 137 is written concerning these events. By the waters of Babylon, There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And then in verse 3, For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, it was all a joke. Sing us of Zion? While the oppressors of Judah were mocking them. How hopeless these songs are. And yet the godly, this storyline was not over. Psalm 137, 5-6, whispers seditious words among the faithful living in Babylon. They said, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. In the midst of disaster, God's true people said, It is impossible for God to lie. His promises must come true. John, great message today. Caused me to think about a few different things, but one is sort of the sovereignty of God in respect to leadership, in respect to raising leaders. And we think of, you know, Solomon didn't end things very well, uh, but God chose him. He was God's chosen man. And we think of leaders around the world, and uh, some of them aren't very good people. So how does the sovereignty of God work in those situations? Yeah, you know, the troubling thought that I sometimes have as I read the Bible account answering the very question that you asked, Ben, is this troubling account that sometimes, perhaps, God will allow a leader to come into place to provide judgment for the hearts of people who are already inclined in a direction away from him. So God's choice of a leader might be judgment against us already. And uh, that certainly was the case. If you think about Solomon, surely he had great impact on his people and led them towards an idolatry that they would not recover from. But in reality, there were idols already there long before Solomon. And so the hearts of people were already inclined in that direction. So in some fashion, I mean, Solomon provides hope, but Solomon also provides judgment. So, you know, I don't know how we work that out in today's world, but maybe both of them are at play. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to continuing our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you as we extend an invitation to journey with us for the Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's royal palace. Visit the Garden Tomb and and sail the Sea of Galilee as we worship together. Enjoy on-location Bible teaching with Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged and share in the laughter with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway. Experience all Israel has to offer with an intimate group of Christian friends. Don't miss this wonderful limited registration opportunity to visit the Holy Land and be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. 
For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.